right, I, <clears throat> I want to begin by telling you where I where I started idea and um, and you'll figure out where I've ended up with it but uh, the sermon today is called discovering discover your spiritual type um, I told Janelle that um, um, I, I was amazed to see this picture on the front she goes out and Google's artwork for the front because uh, this was actually my beginning spot I have this book in my library and it was a rather um, important book in my own kind of spiritual journey and what it did is it helped me to think about how we're all different in terms of how we come to the thing of worship and a lot of it is very uh, greatly personality driven experience driven that sort of thing so uh, you would you would just never see me standing waving my hands you would never see me doing that I, I feel totally disconnected from that. It's just not me. But it doesn't mean I, I don't love God, and it doesn't mean I'm not worshiping. It just means I'm different. That's all. And uh, Dee is, um, we'll talk about Dee since she's not here, but so exuberant, and her, her love for God just sticks out all over her, and that's Dee. And we love her for that. And so we, we all come to this very differently. And this book really talked about how those things get expressed uh, in our lives. So that was really what I was thinking about initially. But then as I got more into this text and got to thinking about it more, I really ended up at a very uh, different spot. Um, this text did a, a 90 degree on me and that's not unusual for that to happen you know you you start with a text and you're, you're thinking about it and, and you even have some prejudices about it because you've read it before and you've studied it before and you've thought about it before and you you think you know what the text is doing until you you dive into it again and start to think about it some more and sometimes those texts just go boop not the way you expect it and uh, this text has been that way for me. The thing that, that draws me to the text that serves sort of as a hub for thinking about it was David's celebratory, I'm going to have trouble with that word, I had trouble this earlier this morning with it, his dance of celebration, uh, that his wife Michael was so ashamed of. He was exuberant and, in her words, immodest. And what he was doing was in no way indicative of what a king should have been doing. And maybe in her mind, what somebody who loves God should have been doing. But the more I got into it and the more I thought about that dance of celebration, I, the more I realized that there were really three people involved in this. There's Uzzah, there's David, and there's Michael, his wife. And I want to talk about them, and I want to talk about their different approaches to worship. And at the end, I want to ask some questions about it. I want you to think about 
uh, where you see yourself in this story. But let's start with, uh, with Uzzah. Uzzah was the son of Abinadab. Abinadab and, Uzzah and, his, and Uzzah's brother lived in Kiriath-Jearim. And at this time, Kiriath-Jearim and the Abinadab household is where the ark cherubim that lifted their wings over it like so. I was watching uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark yesterday and I think probably their replica of the Ark may conceivably be very close to what the original Ark looked like. And in this piece of furniture were three items. A pot of manna. Remember, manna fed the Israelites in the wilderness. Aaron's staff. And this was a miraculous staff because at one point in its history it had actually put out buds. So it was in there. And the Ten Commandments. Tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written were in this ark. So it's very, very important to the people. And it was also symbolic of the presence of God. Twenty years prior to this, the Philistines, mortal enemies of Israel, had stolen the ark. But the Philistines figured out very early that this was not a piece of furniture that they wanted to keep. Because... Immediately upon stealing it, they took it and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And the next morning, they find Dagon laying face down on the floor of the temple. Well, they dismissed it. They thought, well, you know, maybe it was an earthquake. Maybe the San Andreas fault comes through here. And so they put Dagon back up on his pedestal. The next morning, they find Dagon face down on the floor in pieces. And it's going to take some super glue to put Dagon back together again. And they say, maybe we better rethink this ark that we've got. Maybe we're not the victors in this deal. And so they build this brand new cart, I think, out of respect to this piece of furniture. And they put the ark on it, and they strap it to two milk cows who they turn loose, headed roughly in the direction of Israel. Well, the first place that they come is to a town called Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh go, wait a minute, we know what happened to the Philistines because of this, and we don't want it. These are Jews. These are people that should have been saying, we want the ark. What an honor it would be to have the ark in our community. And so they bust up this brand new cart and use it for firewood, and they kill the two cows and use that for the sacrifice, and they 
they had built an altar and they sacrificed to God. Then they put the ark on a new, another cart and send it down the road. And it ends up at Kiriath Jearim. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, that's when Abinadab comes into the picture. I doubt that anyone else stepped forward. And Abinadab, to his credit, says, We'll take it. What a neat deal that would be, to be host to the ark of God, to the ark of the covenant. So he and his three boys uh, build this shelter, and they put the ark in there. And for 20 years, they take care of the ark. I don't know what they did. But for 20 years, they look out their window and they see the ark. For 20 years, this ark is part of their, their home, part of their life, part of their consciousness, taking care of the ark. Um, Abinadab says, I'm going to assign my son Eliezer to take care of the ark. Boy, what training that was for Eliezer to be that close to something so holy. Well, I'm, I think that in 20 years there would be the possibility of this family, of the Abinadab family, developing a, a very familiar kind of relationship with this ark. You know, maybe, maybe at the 10-year mark they looked out the window and said, oh yeah, that's the ark. And maybe they even developed a sort of possessive kind of relationship with it. Yeah, it's, that's the ark. That's it's part of us, part of this household, part of our possessions. And so that brings us to Uzzah because David decides that he wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He realizes that it should not have been away from Jerusalem. That's where the capital is. That's where the throne is. That's where God's place is. They really ought to have the ark. And so Abinadab has to prepare the ark and get the ark ready to go. And he sends Uzzah, one of his sons, to go along with it. And as the ark is going along on this cart, it starts to fall. And Uzzah, who has spent 20 years with this ark, feels personally responsible for it feels connected to it in some way, feels too familiar about the ark. And he reaches out his hand to touch the ark, and he dies. And you know, there's a part of us that, that really wants to go, 
wait a minute. That's not right. That's not fair. 20 years of their lives invested in this ark. 20 years of respect and reverence and, and all of that. 20 years of protection. 20 years of receiving this ark when no one else would. And what's this all about? Well, in Numbers 4.15, as in the household, Abinadab's household may not have been aware of this, but in Numbers 4.15 it says, don't touch holy things or you will die. God had warned. And I, I think that that was God's way of saying, I don't want you to get too familiar. I don't want you taking things for granted when it comes to your relationship with me. Familiarity breeds contempt, we say, when we become too cozy or too possessive or too casual. We tend to overstep the boundaries, don't we? And Uzzah did that. And in this case, he reached out and he touched the holy thing and God caused him to die. Well, David is the second character in this. And um, David's really the one that gets the most attention. Most of the time when you go to this part of 2 Samuel, that's who the sermon's going to be about, is David. Uh, David appropriately wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It was the visible symbol of God's presence. It had these three very important seminal ingredients in it. The manna, the rod, the staff, and the Ten Commandments. On a side note, we're told that David became fearful because of Uzzah's death. So the word had filtered to him up at the head of the procession. By the way, Uzzah died, touched the ark, and David's going, wait a minute, is this such a good idea? Do I really want to bring it to Jerusalem? And so it, uh, it makes another stop. So first Philistia, then to Beth Shemesh, then to Kiriath Jearim for 20 years, and then it goes to Obed Edom's house. It's a hyphenated word, Obed Edom. And Obed Edom starts to be blessed because the ark is there. He's the guy that steps up. He's the guy that says, I want the ark here. Well, David goes, hmm, maybe that was not a good idea. I want some of that. And so he arranges for the ark to be brought to Jerusalem. Clearly, from the text, it's obvious that David knows the significance of it. So the road from Obed-Edom's house is littered with altars. And it's really a funny story because the ark goes a certain distance, and David builds an altar and offers up a cow. And it goes a little more, same distance, a little bit farther down the road. David builds another altar, sacrifices another cow. 
Goes that same distance again. Guess what? David builds an altar, offers another cow all the way to Jerusalem. He knows what he's doing. And David along the way is joyfully worshiping. And I don't know what that looked like, but it involved dance, it involved no doubt laughter, no, no doubt great awe. I think if you'd been there, you, could, you might have accused David of over-exuberance. You might have said, he's lost his mind. What, what a crazy man he is. Look at how he's behaving. That's certainly how Michael felt about it. Being placed inside a tent that David had constructed for that purpose. Remember, they don't have the temple yet. God won't let David build the temple. That comes later in Solomon's reign. So David has to build this sort of impromptu thing, this impermanent thing that the ark is kept in. And he offers sacrifices and he gives food to everybody in Israel as he read to us this morning. At the end of 2 Samuel, there's, a, there's another statement about David that I think probably of everything that's said about David, except maybe Psalms 51, is probably the most telling thing about David's character and his relationship with God and how, how that relationship goes. The context of, of 2 Samuel 24 is that David has conducted a census of the nation, and he's done it not for taxation purposes or anything like that. He's done it because he wants to see how militarily strong he is. That's the point of the census. And throughout the Old Testament, God had said, I don't want you to rely on your own strength. I want you to trust me. And this was a very untrusting thing that David has done. He's saying in his own head, I wonder if I can defeat Philistia. I wonder if I can do this. I wonder if I can do that. With no concern about how God will enter into his life and work in his life. Well, God steps into this picture and he says, this is not a good thing, David, and I'm going to punish you for it. And then it's resolved because David goes to offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering, on behalf of his nation and because of his sin. And he goes to a guy named Aruna. Aruna's a man of some means, and he's got the perfect place for this altar that David's going to build. And he says to David, he's the king, right? And he says, David, King David, you don't have to worry about a thing. I've got all the wood. I've got, all, I've got the livestock. I've got everything that you need, and it's covered. Really neat, generous thing, right? David says, this is Logue's translation, uh, Arun, I really appreciate that. Thanks so much. But I can't offer to God gifts that cost me nothing. I think it's one of the most powerful 
statements about faith and about, about sacrifice and personal connection to God and worship that there is in the Bible. I can't offer to you gifts that cost me nothing. Well, there's one other person that we need to look at. And that's Michael. Michael is the younger daughter of Saul. Remember, he was the king before David. And we learn in 1 Samuel 18 that she was in love with David. She loved him. So Saul secretly hates David. He's jealous of David. David's head and shoulders above him in terms of his military power and his charisma and all of that sort of stuff. And so Saul wants to kill him. Literally wants to kill him. And so he says, Say, David, uh, want my daughter, Micah? Michael's a, a looker, and women are property. And so you could do that. You could give your daughter away. And she had no say in it. He says, You can have Michael as your wife with the proviso that you kill 100 Philistines. Kill 100 Philistines. Well, you know what, what Saul is thinking? Saul's thinking that David's going to get killed in this battle. There's no way he's going to survive killing 100 Philistines. But we know the story. David is... Uh, successful in that, and he brings to Saul what Saul has asked for as proof, and he gets Michael. Now, in the story, you never hear that David loved Michael. You never hear the text saying David had been looking at Michael, he desired her, he wanted her as his wife. None of that language is there. So Michael comes into his household, the text does say that it pleased him that she loved him. So I read ego trip in there a little bit. Yeah. Well, Michael loved David so much that she even came to his protection once and protected him from people that would have killed him. But in the midst of this marriage with Michael, David also takes Abigail and Ahinoam as his wives. And I think there's indication from the text that he really loved Abigail. Well, if you're Michael, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, what do you what do you feel at this point? So Saul, it says, got angry with David, and he went and he took Michael away. From David. He's still king. And gives her to a man named Palti. Palti loves Michael. He loves her. And there's every indication that their marriage was good and all of that. Well, after David becomes king and has the power to do so, he goes and he takes Michael away from Palti. Remember, women have no rights. 
They're just property. It says that Paul T. walked pathetically down the road after Michael as the king's servants took her to Jerusalem. Breaks my heart. Because Paul T. is the guy with the real character in this story. He's the guy that loves her. He's the guy that would give to her what she needs and deserves. But David doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about what he's doing to Paul T. or to Michael. And I think that was the beginning for, well, probably not the beginning, but it was probably the nail in the coffin of Michael feeling utter contempt for David. Utter, utter contempt. And so we come to the dance. Her father was a man of, uh, I think, probably some modesty and dignity. So she's comparing David to him. And she says, David, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be ashamed for the way that you've represented the kingdom, the way that you have paraded yourself immodestly in front of everybody. Maybe she sees, maybe she even uses the word hypocrisy to describe David at this point. So there you have it. You have three people, and each has a different approach to worship. Uzzah becomes protective and too familiar with the ark, and he doesn't respect God's wishes in regard to it. David is exuberant and expressive, and, and he's also the man that wouldn't offer to God gifts that cost him nothing. And then there's Michael, who for, no, for whatever reason sat in her apartment and stewed and fumed and, as Bev said, was a prisoner to these emotions that she felt because of David, justifiably so. Now, the point of this sermon is not to turn these three into a template. That's, it's not like the book, because the book is really template. But this, this is just to get you to thinking about maybe some modern analogies when it comes to worship. Is it possible that we form affections that substitute for the real thing? Maybe like Uzzah, who, who loves the ark and wants to preserve the ark, and maybe has become too familiar with it and with the God that he thinks it represents. Sometimes I, I think kind of the good buddy view that you often hear in today's society regarding God, approaches what was going on here with Uzzah. Or, or David, is it possible that we are doing things that cause others to be turned off to what we're saying? And I'm not talking about worship here but just maybe in our life in a general sense, in the way that our lives are are supposed to be worship to God. Uh, is it 
possible that we ever appear to others as hypocritical because of the way that we, we live and sort of speak out of both sides of our mouth. Different on Monday than we are on Sunday. Or in regard to Michael, is it possible that we allow ourselves to be consumed by anger and resentment which causes us to lose our joy? I understand. I'm not trying to poo-poo what happened with Michael. She had plenty of reasons to feel that way. But she was really the victim, ultimately the victim of all of that. We could talk about a lot of other characters in the Bible, but I, I think these... These three provide a really, really interesting glimpse into relationships that people, would ha that people had with God and, and where those relationships led them. Do you resemble any of them? Uh, what, what changes do you think they would call forth from you or us in order to be more like what God wants us to be? Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your, your great majesty, for creating us, for bringing true joy to our lives. Please help us to live like David in terms of our generous commitment to you. Only do not let us be overcome by anger and resentment. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.